The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, for fear of sounding like a broken record, and regular listeners of the show will have heard me say this at least 10 times this summer, but I do feel that this week we have reached an inflection point. How many times have we said that? But this is just an unbelievable year that we're going through. Let me walk you through a couple of the events over the past, say, five to 10 days, and they have been dramatic. Number one, in Angola, it appears that the Chinese have reached some kind of debt restructuring debt settlement deal with the Angolan government that paved the way for the International Monetary Fund to also reach a debt relief deal. Uh, That will free up about $6.2 billion worth of money between now and 2023. We don't know the details of the deal, but something happened on the ground that allowed the IMF to feel confident to proceed with their deal. So that is an important step because Angola represents a disproportionate amount of Chinese debt in Africa. So if you solve the Angola problem, or at least temporarily solve it, you have taken a big piece of that debt off the table in Africa. Then there's Zambia. And Kobus, I do want to get your take on what's going on in Zambia, because I know you're thinking about this right now. Zambia defaulted on about $3 billion of euro bond debt, three notes that are due over the next few years. That prompted uh, a near immediate downgrade by Fitch ratings, and the backlash has been quick, and it has been extreme, and now the cost of borrowing for Zambia has gone up. This is the fear, the nightmare that so many African finance ministers had hoped to avoid Uh, Across the continent, they said, we don't want to touch the eurobond debt for fear that we will be downgraded and our future borrowing will be endangered. Now we're seeing that play out in Zambia. We don't know yet what the Chinese are doing. Again, the Chinese have been characteristically quiet on all of this, but it does bring up the point that the Chinese in Zambia, who own about 44, 45% of the country's $11 billion of debt, uh, are not the key problem right now. It is the eurobond holders. Kobus, we'll get your take on that. Then there's Kenya right now, and a dramatic situation is unfolding in Nairobi, whereby it looks like Kenya Railways is running out of time in its ability to service the debt for the standard gauge railway. The line from Mombasa to Nairobi is the one that everybody's focusing on right now. It defaulted on a payment of about $350, $360 million earlier this summer, Right now, the Kenyan government is bleeding $9.2 million a month to to support this railway. That is not sustainable when passenger loads and cargo volumes are down and not generating sufficient revenue to pay back those debts. There's a lot at stake for the Chinese in Nairobi and in Kenya with the SGR. This, of course, is one of the crown jewels of the Belt and Road. It also is in an environment that is very different than, say, Angola, where the media is not as robust, it's not English-speaking, and what happens in Kenya does have an impact elsewhere around the continent. Also, you have a very 
I call him aggressive, assertive, vocal U.S. Ambassador Kyle McCarter, who was very critical of the Chinese. He's going to be watching very carefully to see what happens with this railway. And you got to believe that if this railway stumbles, boy, the critics of China's debt trap diplomacy, as they contend, will pounce very quickly. Kobus, a lot going on this past week. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I think, you know, like the, 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 what I've been thinking actually is that we might see, uh, you know, soon see a, a repetition of a, a little discussed deal um, that we've discussed <laughs> um, in, uh, in Laos recently, um, where, where uh, the state power company was on the verge of, of a, a default um, and then struck a deal with, uh, with China's southern government. Uh, grid company um which would essentially they were they're essentially creating a a new company um you know which which would allow laos to avoid default but at the same time it, it essentially gives the chinese company control um over laos's power grid um so you know this this isn't the kind of kind of hardcore you know asset grabbing that we've seen china being accused of um but it is a way, I think, to it is a kind of a move in a similar direction, in a kind of debt for equity swap direction, and it'll be very interesting to see whether this model is taken up in Africa, particularly for uh, for ways for a way of for African governments to avoid um, eurobond default. G7 finance ministers got together last week, and they are expressing in increasing amounts of frustration with the Chinese government that they are not being proactive enough in the debt service suspension initiative which is the g20's debt debt relief program so there's growing pressure on the chinese to do something and to be more proactive let's get a take now on the big picture of how this is seen across the continent and we don't we could not find a better person to give us that overview than yinka adigoke who is the africa editor at the online financial news site quartz it is really a crime against humanity that he has not been on our show in all the 10 years that we've been doing the show. And so we are so grateful that you got up early to join us, Yinka. Thank you very much for your time today. Hi, guys. Uh, and thanks for the wonderful uh, intro. Um, can I just say congratulations to both of you for... I could not believe when you did your 10th anniversary the other day uh, that you'd been going for 10 years. We're very, very grateful for the excellent work you do because so many of us learn from it. And, um, you know, we, we, we build our coverage around a lot of the work you, you, you guys do. Wow. Well, we are humbled that uh, humbled for your, your praise there. Thank you so much. And we appreciate, again, you and your correspondents we've worked with over the years to, to kind of help craft some of the coverage and to support you. Tell us a little bit about how you see these events unfolding right now, because the, the economic crisis is really taking on a a momentum that does seem like it's picking up after about six months of this crisis began. Yeah, uh, oh, where to start? There's so much to get into here. But I, I suppose we, we take a step back and we think, okay, where, where was the Africa, you know, if you want to take a big, broad picture, where was Africa's economy, if there's such a thing as Africa's economy? But you know, you know what I mean, the, the combination of, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where, where how our economy is doing and you know, things have slowed down by the start of the year. And, you know, we were expecting the usual uh, fast-growing economies to keep going um, and some of the big, bigger ones to, you know, start to come back, Nigeria, South Africa. And then obviously COVID hits and lockdowns happen and everything slows down. And then we start to realise, oh, 
the debt situation, which was already a problem, which was already a looming crisis, is going to become a problem much quicker than many of these countries, many of these finance ministers expected. Um, and um, it has overtaken many of the concerns, uh, many of the economic concerns in, in many of the, uh, of the big economies. Um, you can see this as you've just, you've just laid out so beautifully there in, in Kenya, in Zambia, uh, but also in Angola. But even in countries where it's not a massive problem directly with the Chinese specifically, um, like Nigeria, th th this has become uh, a real concern. It has come to the fore. And that's what's interesting about this time. It's not as if these problems did not exist or these challenge, challenges were not looming, but um, it's as if uh, the COVID crisis has, has, has made everyone sit up and pay a bit more attention. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you can see that in your coverage, in our coverage. Uh, I, 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 every week when I put out a news, newsletter, I try to resist <laughs> writing yet another story about African debt because it, it starts to get a little bit uh, repetitive and depressing, but it's it's the biggest issue now. Yeah, for me also, like one, one of the issues that goes with it is that so frequently... You know, some some of the discourse around around African debt, and particularly around like rapidly rising African debt, frequently kind of frames it as in terms of oh, these African countries, they just like profligate lenders or borrower borrowers. You know, kind of they just they all of these vanity projects that they're financing. But you know, there's there's no way of of pu pulling apart the issue of of what of the the sustainable development goals and the the the, the ways that China that, that Africa needs to move forward and try to to kind of prepare for for what is essentially the world's youngest population, uh, you know, away from the issue of how to finance all of that, you know, um, and you know, so so the, the the discussion of the debt problem is actually also a discussion of the very of the the problem of development itself. And there's just so few solutions to that on the table in the world at the moment. It's, it's very distressing for me. Yinka, like, uh, how do you how, how do you approach that? Like, you know, kind of in in, in terms of you know how in in your own work, um, how do you break down the silo of development kind of discourse versus the silo of debt discourse? Like, is there a way of of talking about debt in a way that that actually you know, kind of shows the 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 real impact of it beyond beyond finance. Yeah, that's a re that's a great question because it's difficult to do. I mean, if you think about our kind of audience, we're trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, we have a, a broader audience, I, I suspect, than 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 uh, than China Africa project uh, in the sense that we probably have you know more non development specialists and lots of non you know sort of experts uh in our audience uh and the, the it, it, it's tricky to try to frame explain these things in in fairly uh simple terms without being simplistic um because you want to you you, you know you, you you obviously don't want to be boring you want to also engage people as to why this is important that that you know debt when, when many ordinary readers hear the word debt, you know, they think about it in very personal terms. I don't want to run into debt, right? Whereas in, in finance, in economic terms, 
we, we all know that uh, this is the way businesses grow, this is the way economies grow. Uh, and to try and explain to readers that um, it's not ha- raising debt to develop your country is not, uh, as you've just said there, goes, it's not some sort of problem in itself. It is about how you manage it. So we, we, we've had quite a few stories about this that, okay, yes, uh, you know, this country has raised debt, but that's not the issue here. The issue is, what are these projects? How will this, um, how will this debt be managed? Uh, what are the long-term views? Um, we've also had uh, looked at something that you raised there earlier, which is that this is not all about uh, bilateral Chinese debt, that the biggest issue here for many countries is is that they joined the Eurobond party and um, that was all well and good um, a few years ago, but many of them, perhaps a few countries went too far and um, are now struggling. And that, and that there isn't much focus on that. There's a lot of focus on, on a very easily identif- identifiable, you know, villain, so to speak, which is China. Um, <laughs> but, but really, you know, the biggest issue for, for, for many countries are people sitting at uh, funds in London and, and elsewhere who are, you know, not so much villains, but, you know, they're doing what they have to do. They're doing what they always do. And the question is, uh, uh, have you, Mr. Finance Minister, because they usually miss this, uh, Finance Minister, have you, have you, how have you managed this situation? The China story in Africa is a lot about debt, but not only about debt. And let's kind of pull back a little bit now and expand because the economic influence extends far beyond just obviously financing. Um, one of the stories that I've been following a lot lately is uh, cobalt mining in Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. That supply chain is absolutely critical for electric vehicles, for uh, aerospace, for Mm. defense. And the Chinese control of the the vertical supply supply chain is something that is of great concern in Europe and the United States. We've also been looking at the fact that Chinese infrastructure building across the continent has persisted right on through COVID. It's really remarkable to watch. Uh, One other point that I wanted to get your take on is also Transin, the uh, Shenzhen-based mobile phone company that is by far the most dominant player in the mobile market across the continent. Uh, more than 50% of the smartphone market, if I recall, I'm doing that off the top of my head, is, uh, is, is, is under Techno, Infinix, and some of the other t- uh, Transin brands. They registered 33% growth in profits in the first half of 2020 during the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Remarkable growth. So when we're talking about China's influence in Africa, debt is one part, but there are big implications for the global economy. You're going to be organizing a conference on Thursday, October 8th at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time uh, to talk about these issues. Talk a little bit about what you want to address at that conference, what are some of the topics, who the guests are, and, and give us a sense of how this all kind of weaves together into what you're planning to do. Thanks, uh, Eric. I love that you use Changchun as uh, as the <laughs> as the avatar for for China and Africa because I think you very correctly point out that um, a lot of the focus is on infrastructure and debt, but uh, really Changchun really captures how 
this story is about more than just um, about those two big things. Um, it is about uh, real influence, real market influence, real consumer market influence. What is the most expensive thing that many, particularly young Africans, will buy? The first, you know, thing more than a hundred dollars they'll buy. It will be a mobile phone, and I, the numbers have been changing somewhat, but they, uh, but over the last ten years. Tangent has completely dominated the market across all the biggest uh, countries uh, for phone sales. And, but, and not just in the hardware space, but also in the services space. Exactly. Boomplay, which is the music exactly. service, the payment apps and whatnot. That's all part of this transit exactly. ecosystem. Exactly. They, exactly. And, and, you know, it's it's um, both you, you, you can't help but admire the sort of resilience and the... Um, Sure, they've been opportunistic, but that's kind of what business is. Being opportunistic, being smart, and just also um, sticking with it in a very... These are not wealthy markets. We know this. And yet they have managed to meet market demand. Um, and they have kept at it. And they've, they've, they've built a market which they have a 40% plus stake. Um, but why that's interesting is because it ties into you know what we're trying to do with our event, which you very kindly are taking part in, um, where which we've uh, called "What China's Influence in Africa Means for the Global Economy," because what we're what, what we're saying and what we've always said this is this is um, what the China and Africa story is. It's not just about China or just about Africa or about African countries. It really is about how China um, gets to test the market gets to test um, its theories, its experiments of going global in Africa because for all the obvious reasons that we know, there, there, are, there are less rules, less restrictions, the, the, there's more demand, there's a young growing population, uh, there are governments that are under pressure to, to, uh, to, uh, to service their, to serve their, their populations. So, They've welcomed China in, but it's not just about China and Africa. It is about how China uh, moves into the rest of the world. And, you know, that Africa is a very good uh, way for us to understand um, how China's influence will grow in the world. Uh, very quickly about the event is it's at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time, which those of us in Asia are very grateful that you picked a reasonable time on the East Coast to do an event. It's also a convenient <laughs> yeah. time for those of you listening from Africa as well, because it's around lunchtime or early afternoon for most of you. Is yeah. there an admission? How are people? How do people find out more? What's the? What are the details? Yeah, we're we're sending out um, links. We're gonna we're gonna put stuff on our on our Twitter uh, this week to share links which people can register. Our Twitter is. Uh, QZ Africa, QZ Africa, um, and you can follow us there, and you'll see you'll see the links. Uh, we'll also send out for those who are already um, uh, Quartz Africa newsletter subscribers. They'll 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 see the links uh, sent out to them as well. Um, Is it free? It's a free, it's a free event. Uh, we're gonna have Eric's gonna be on with his excellent insight. We're also gonna have. Uh, Jude Moore from the Center for Global Development. I know he's a, a regular on your podcast as well, as well as Hannah Ryder uh, from De Development uh, Reimagined, which is the uh, the um, uh, 
consultant firm in Beijing that looks at these things. So I, I'm looking forward to a very uh, spirited discussion, uh, getting into these topics, because, uh, you know, there's so much to get into. And I know, you know, it's going to be one hour, but we could we could probably do three hours <laughs> on, some, <laughs> on some of these topics, because because we're all three of you and myself are, are quite passionate uh, about these topics. So you know one one of the one of the issues you touched on, um, and I was wondering if if that's actually going to come up um, in uh, in the discussion as well is is Africa's potential um, power as a as a consumer base. Um, you know, it's it, it seems to me that you know. Like you, you, you mentioned that that I think, and I agree with you that Transient has been has been opportunistic in some kind of ways, but in other ways, like part, part of its success is also just simply being the first to show up. Um, and Boom Boomplay is is a is a great example. But Boomplay being the the music streaming service that's that is um, partly owned by Transient. Um, you know, they, when they moved into Africa, they 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 did a lot of work on the ground um, to to secure music rights to African music. Um, um, which was actually a very big job. Like it, it, it included like having to actually go to to studios and like showing people to how you know helping them to digitize the music, and like you know signing many many different kind of individual rights um, agreements with with many players. So it was a really a really kind of big job. And in, as a result, they have they now sit on this massive kind of treasury of of, of legal African music. Um, you know, like. I guess what I'm asking is, you know, do, do you foresee anyone else kind of learning from this and trying to court African consumers in a similar way? Um, it seems to me in the West that there's that Africa is just frequently not considered as a, as a as a valuable consumer base at all. Um, do you foresee this changing over the next while? Another great question. I, I don't know if you know this, Kobus, but my my previous life um, before I I was at Quartz Africa it was uh, I was the deputy editor at Billboard. And um, oh, wow. I, I, I remember pushing for us to cover Africa more uh, because, um, and we did, and we wrote some of the, 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 I think the first ever stories they ever did about um, Afrobeats music scene was, you know, were stories that I commissioned. Uh, and and the, the point about that is how that captures um, a, a kind of reluctance I mean, this is the music business, but this then you could just you could extrapolate that to so many other industries, particularly in the consumer industries, to not see in the opportunity uh, in Africa, um, not seeing Africa as as consumer economies of, of of finished products, so to speak, um, other than you know very very sort of um, low uh, cheap uh, products and not 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 sort of more sophisticated services. Um, but what has happened, which is interesting, if you stick to the music for a second, what has happened is because so much, uh, so much music is coming out of Africa that's going global, thanks to all these social media and, uh, and other platforms, you know, they've, all these guys have come around to it. And I know from uh, discussions and from things you can see out there that uh, they're, they're much more uh, on top of this. But in general, um, that point still stands with most, with many markets, the many sectors of, of consumer, uh, consumer markets where people are, you know, uh, yes, Africa is interesting. It's a place to go and get commodities and build stuff and then maybe sell a few things back, but not really develop products for, that, for the market itself. Because that's why the transient story is so interesting, right? Here's a company 
um, which which is making products just for the African consumer. You guys have, have done this several times, so I don't need to uh, go into the details of it. But not you don't see other companies doing that. You don't see other international companies doing that, um, or even doing enough partnerships where you make products specifically, and not just say Africa, but you know make products specifically for Kenya or specifically for Angola, whatever, um, and then go from there. There's not enough of that happening. And there, and there are real opportunities because, frankly, um, in many of these countries, their, their, their manufacturing cap capacity and their ability to develop products is, is not what it should be or what it could be. Some of these countries um, were probably better 30 years ago than they are now in, in that sense. Um, so there, there's, there's definitely opportunity and, and Transient is just one company uh, that's proven it and is again another reason why the, the, the China-Africa relationship is so interesting because they just have a different attitude to these things. And another company that we should put on that list is also Start Times, which like Transcend right. has created a product just for Africa. It's based right. in Beijing, but it doesn't have a business outside of Africa. Exactly. It's got about 33, 34 million customers across the continent. And what's interesting is that that is spurring interest in other sectors, particularly in entertainment and culture and sports that traditionally have not been associated with the Chinese. So obviously Kung Fu movies have long been popular in Africa, right, going back right, to Bruce right. Lee and whatnot. But now Chinese dramas are actually gaining some momentum oh. because they're just easily available. And they're very simple stories like the Korean dramas and the telenovelas, 13 episodes, 26 episodes, story arcs that are really easy, also culturally rather conservative, hmm. unlike a lot of the US and European uh, yeah. dramas that have more sex and language and violence in them. The Korean and Chinese dramas tend to be more kind of culturally conservative to reflect those cultures, and a lot of conservative African families do like those more conservative, you know, storylines. Interestingly enough, that's also prompting more interest in the Chinese Super League. The Chinese Super League, which is the professional soccer league in China, has been spending millions of dollars to bring over kind of some of the aging stars from yeah. uh, English Premier League. Uh, from Ghana and Nigeria and some of the other places, but that is driving, and I've, been, I've just been noticing this, I wrote a column about it a couple weeks ago, how because Star Times is now broadcasting two matches a day during the Chinese Super League season, what's happening is that it's parking, sparking more media coverage in Africa in the sports sector to follow those stars. Oh, and that, again, brings a connection between China and Africa that is wholly depoliticized. It's focused on the stars. In fact, there are two Malawian sisters right now who are playing on rival teams in China. And in Malawi, they're generating a whole lot of coverage just because what are the sisters doing? And it's a great story that these two sisters are in China playing against each other, they're rivals, and, and it's just a fun little story. So th this is happening in a very, very multifaceted uh, way. I want to kind of bring us now to the U.S.-China-Africa relationship. You're based in New York. Mm -hmm. You follow what's going on in, in global politics. The Department of Homeland Security uh, just put through a proposal now to limit... Uh, visas for any country that overstays, has a 10% right. overstay rate, and that is going to wipe out a significant portion of, of African countries who will now no longer be able to get four-year student visas, and they're going to restrict it down to two years. Of course, this is a proposal. It has not been enacted yet. Yeah. But it really is, and what I wrote today in our newsletter, was basically ceding the educational diplomacy market to China, who now has 82, 83,000 
uh, African students. Uh, according to some research from Development Reimagined, which is Hannah Ryder's mm-hmm. uh, boutique agency in Beijing, China will now overtake France to become the leading destination for African students. And it's a huge development. And so thinking about all of this with the U.S.-China-Africa relationship, something that another one of your guests at the panel coming up on October 8th, Jude Moore, who's been thinking a lot about, that Africa does not want to be caught in the middle of whatever's happening between the right. U.S. and China. Yeah. Now, this month, uh, is, there's a lot of reflection back on what happened 30 years ago, back in 1990. Uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, the former president of South Africa, the former apart- anti-apartheid leader and the ANC, Chief, uh, he was freed from from prison. Apartheid was coming down. He made a tour in the United States, and this popped up on my social media feed. And it's a little bit of a long quote. It's about three minutes long. Bear with me. It's so interesting. And Yinka and Kobus, I'd like to get both of your assessment of what Mandela said thirty years ago about his decision to embrace enemies of the United States mm-hmm. for their diplomacy and what it says about the current state of U.S.-China-Africa relations. So this was a live TV program with Ted Koppel at the City University of New York with former or deceased president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. Let us move on to our next questioner at the microphone over there. Mr. Edelman. Welcome to America, Mr. Mandela. I'm Ken Edelman. Those of us who share your struggle for human rights and against apartheid have been somewhat disappointed by the models of human rights that you have held up since being released in jail. You've met over the last six months three times with Yasser Arafat, who you have praised. You have told Gaddafi that you share the view and applaud him on his record of human rights and his drive for freedom and peace around the world. And you have praised Fidel Castro as a leader of human rights and said that Cuba was one of the countries that's head and shoulders above all other countries in human rights, despite the fact that documents of the United Nations and elsewhere show that Cuba is one of the worst. I was just wondering, are these your models of leaders of human rights? And if so, would you want a Gaddafi or an Arafat or a Castro to be a future president of South Africa? One of the mistakes which some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies. never do. We have our own struggle, which we are conducting. We are grateful to the world for supporting our struggle. But nevertheless, we are an independent organization with its own policy. And the attitude of every country towards Our attitude towards any country is determined by the attitude of that country to our struggle.
Yasser Arafat, Colonel Gaddafi, Fidel Castro, support our struggle to the hilt. There is no reason whatsoever why we should have any hesitation about hailing their commitment to human rights as they are being demanded in South Africa. Our attitude is based solely on the fact that they fully support the anti-apartheid struggle. They do not support it only in rhetoric. They are placing resources at our disposal for us to win this fight. Yinka, in 2020, is China the Gaddafi, Arafat, and Castro <laughs> to what it was in 1990? And listening to Mandela, it did strike me that there might be some interesting parallels of Africa and someone like Mandela speaking on behalf of the continent to chart their own course independent of conservative Americans like Ken Edelman, who have been telling Africans what they should and shouldn't do. And Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa today, is one of the most outspoken critics of the United States who's saying, pushing back. What's your take in terms of, are there lessons to be learned from what Mandela said? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know what's so fascinating about that, uh, Eric, is that uh, that is one of those, I, I like that you said it popped up on your social media um, uh, recently, that pops up on my social media. That 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 video pops up on my social media uh, three or four times a year um, because, particularly if you if you are in uh, sort of because I follow a lot of Africa uh, focused um, groups on places like Facebook and, and stuff like that. Um, because I, and I, I and and what that tells you is how people feel. Uh, how African people feel or Africans, uh, people of African origin feel about the need for African governments uh, and organizations like the African Union to be able to stand up to whoever the powers are, not just the West, but also uh, the Chinese or whoever. Um, even, if it's, even if it's sort of uh, what you might call a rhetorical um, kind of position. But is, there, is that a sadness, though, that we don't have that voice? We have to go back to Mandela 30 years ago to find, to articulate that voice well, rather than the leaders of today who are not necessarily doing that. There are some of those voices, though. I mean, you know, like him or loathe him, um, Paul Kagame kind of does, does, does the rhetoric. I mean, you know, he does the rhetoric. Uh, um... um as you say, Ramaphosa and, and a couple of others here and there, um, uh, Akufuado in Ghana. You know, the, the truth of it for people in African countries is, well, it's all very well to say this stuff, but what are you actually doing is, is, the, bigger, is the bigger challenge there. Um, because many of these countries are not in a position to, um, how can we put this, to to match their rhetoric, even if they did have the leaders who, who spoke well to this, to match their rhetoric, because they, 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 they still have to negotiate with uh, Western countries and the, particularly with the United States as well as China. And, but, but the overall position 
as very well articulated by uh, Jude Moore, is it's really important. It's really important that African leaders um, are focused on not taking sides. It's just because this it cannot end well. It's the it's the old uh, it's the old saying: when two elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. The the the, the Africa is very much the grass in this situation, um, and um, it is. But it's so important for for leaders of their of their countries and of the various um, institutions like the African Union to be clear uh, that no one is taken aside here uh because it will not end well for for uh 1.2 billion people Kobus, what's your take you know you, you asked if if china in this case is is cuba and kind of yes but also kind of no um yes in the sense that that the like cuba particularly has been incredibly helpful to south africa over over many many decades um and has i think there might still be cuban doctors in south africa right now actually i think there are there was a delegation of cuban doctors i think is dealing helping to deal with covid in in south africa like there's been cuban um you know kind of medical personnel have been like in in south africa helping for years and years and years and years um, and before that, they they were sending soldiers to fight in you know kind of anti-colonial struggles. It's it's a level of of kind of material solidarity from a country that everyone knows is extremely poor. Um, you know that that really is stands above and beyond. Um, on the other and in the in the same vein, I think China China's different in the sense that it represents a really massive power block. You know, um, one that that a country like Cuba didn't, and and of course Mandela was speaking at a moment when the Soviet Union itself was falling apart. So that kind of bipolar view of 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 the world that that I think some some actors in the U.S. government is trying to promote again at the moment um, was at that moment falling apart. Um, and you know, so so I think there's a wariness in Africa about the the kind of power that China represents, but also an optim or not not optimism is the wrong word like a like an, an interest in the sense that it it also represents you know the the rise of a non-Western power, um, like a real power that that is actually non-Western, um, and that I think you know that that the implication of that is massive for Africa, you know, because because it's you you can't take away the 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 overlap between between Western power as we see it in the world, including many of the good things that Western powers do, you know, like a, a very well articulated focus on human rights, for example. You can't take that away from the role of whiteness in the world, um, you know, like from the colonial era onwards. And, you know, so and no one has suffered under whiteness more than Africa. Um, so I think, you know, the, 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 that kind of the, the implications of a, of a real significant rising power, you know, that, that, that isn't part of that, that kind of nexus, that, that, that doesn't come out of a Western development model, for example, can't, can't be overstated. And I think it's frequently very difficult for Western commentators to actually value um, Yinka, in being in New York, um, like, do, like to, to which extent, like, how, how much nuance are you seeing in, in relation to how these questions are being discussed in, um, 
in the U.S., um, particularly in relation to um, you know to to the the overlap between between Black Lives Matter within the U.S. and the the global position of Africa. You know, like how like how how do those how, like do people bring those two together, or, and and to which extent is 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 that actually kind of making like sh- starting to shape a discussion? Yeah, I don't think there is as much of overlap as there could be. I mean, the, one of the more, I don't want to say amazing or surprising, but one of, still, still kind of surprising in 2020, one of the more interesting things about covering Africa uh, here is how there's still a lot of, um, still a lot of uh, lack of awareness about Africa in many, in very many contexts. And, um, you know, the people are definitely obviously interested in Black Lives Matter in Africa, as we know, but it's not, it's not kind of, people aren't making the link between the two, um, even though, you know, they are, historically there are, there are obvious links. Um, but in general, the, the issue with uh, most things to do with Africa coverage is just like, it's just not at the top of most people's agenda. I know you have a very busy news day ahead of you. We're catching you at the beginning of your day, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Let's now wrap up our discussion with the same question that we've been asking most of our guests uh, who come on the show. Given the moment that we're in right now, and it's so difficult to see what's coming, much less three, four, five months down the road or next year, next week, it's hard to figure out at the pace of change that's going on. Give us a little bit about where you see the China-Africa relationship in the short term. And I don't even know how to define the short term, but based on what you're reading and seeing right now and what your correspondents are are reporting on, where do you see this going right now? So people can get a sense of what to expect in the months ahead. Yeah, yeah, you're right. This this is a very difficult question, but to to give any one answer, I don't think we, we get much beyond some of the stuff we opened up with. Uh, which is, you know, trying to see how the uh, the debt situation plays out, trying to understand if um, the Chinese will really come through on the vaccine situation, because there are going to be lots of questions about that. I mean, there have been promises made. So uh, will will we to your to your point the point of some of your questions? Will we get into? Uh, don't take the Chinese vaccine, take the US vaccine situation, take the one from WHO, I, I don't know. Like that, that, There's a real possibility of that kind of thing happening. Um, and I hope it doesn't, but you know, th- this is, uh, is gonna become a reality depending on how these things uh, play out. Um, I think that um, we're gonna probably see, I, I think, I think it doesn't get much beyond the debt situation, to be honest with you. That's that's going to dominate the, the, the conversation for, for, the, for the short term. Yinka Adegoke is the Africa editor at Quartz. You can find them, all the work that he's doing at Quartz, uh, that's at QZ.com. Yinka, there's a lot of ways for people to get a hold of you. You're very public on social media. Tell us, where can we find you? Also, while you're doing that, remind us again about the event and also if people want to subscribe to Quartz's excellent subscription program. Yeah, I mean, thank, thanks a lot. for. Um, you can follow me at Yinka Writes, Y-I-N-K-A Writes, as in to write. And the event is uh, what China's influence in Africa means for the global economy. It's on October 8th, uh, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, New York Time. 
And what else do I, should I tell you? Oh yes, do come to qz.com slash Africa, which is where um, you can uh, find all the Africa stories, but also find a link to uh, subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which uh, you know sums up many of these issues, uh, as well as China and Africa, obviously. Well, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to the event, and I'm just so excited that you finally had a chance to join us on the show. Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Kobus, it was at the very end of our discussion when Yinka said that debt is going to be the driving issue between now and the end of the year. And as much as we don't necessarily want it to be that because it in some ways takes the oxygen out of the room for everything else in the China-Africa relationship, there's no getting around the fact that the debt issue, especially in countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, that are highly indebted to China, is going to be the the only issue that we talk about now. Because you brought this up in terms of the relationship between debt and development. Debt touches on absolutely everything. Because without the economic sustenance, there's no way that African countries are going to be able to fight the pandemic, provide the social services, be able to build the industries to get through this pandemic onto the other side, and then, of course, grow these economies that are in need of generating vast amounts of jobs and quickly. So we didn't talk about a comment that you've brought up many, many times in the show and the need for speed. And again, that goes again to the to the Chinese advantage here, their ability to build railways, their ability to build cell phone networks, their ability to turn ideas into projects is something that Africa today needs now more than ever in light of the pandemic. Yeah, completely. Um, and it's also, you know, th- there's a weird thing where the fact that China, that the Chinese companies are generally so willing to work in Africa and then that they're also relatively willing to facilitate financing, which is now leading to a big debt problem, weirdly just compounds China's in, in, you know, kind of influence in Africa. I think the, 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 the weird thing about the debt is that it's going to pull Africa closer to China rather than pushing it further away. But that may be the point. That may be the point. So the... The, the, the critics in the U.S. Yeah. were always talking about seizing assets and debt traps and things like that. Really, at the end of the day, this may have been much more about the BRI as a, as a tractor beam from Star Wars that just pulls people in and they become so dependent, whether it's on Huawei networking gear, that they're so dependent on that they can't go anywhere else, whether it's on techno phones and, of course, on all the infrastructure and the debt. At the end of the day, your choices become limited because of your dependence. You know, I, I think if there, if there is a situation, okay, this is a hypothetical. If there is a situation where there is some kind of debt for equity swap arranged between a Chinese company and an African power grid or whatever, you know, um, and you know, and and there is some kind of deal worked out to to avoid some uh, to avoid a default, I I hundred percent bet money. I, I'm willing to bet money that there will be a, a massive kind of nationalist kind of moral panic about that in whatever African country it'll be you know kind of that it will that that for a while kind of media will melt down about about what this means um and you know what the implications are for Africa and and I share those concerns however I think at some stage it might just then turn into a new normal um you know and depending on how how interventionist whatever chinese actor is um you know that's involved in that deal it you know i i can i can imagine it slowly segueing into just simply the way that things run in in some african countries um you know and 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 what the implications of that is i'm not sure well it will also vary 
greatly depending on the country. So people in Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, democracies that have vibrant independent media, uh, people will lose their minds over this, as we saw in Nigeria with the sovereignty clause over, you know, we're talking a few billion dollars of loans comparative to, say, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Djibouti, where the loan values are much, much higher. Uh, but in more authoritarian countries like Egypt, I don't think you'll see the same pushback at all. So if the Chinese were smart, and I don't think they necessarily are all the times on these issues, they will start in authoritarian countries and then roll that plan out. And again, Laos is not really is not a democracy, so they were able to uh, to do that. And there's not there's been no media coverage, no critiques of it since then, and so it went by very quietly. So it'll be interesting to see. The interesting thing on the debt for equity swap, while it's a creative financial solution and technically may actually solve the problems in the short term, it does provoke critics in the U.S. and Europe to suggest that it is just a variation of the debt trap. So the Chinese, at the end of the day, are still getting the asset. Whether they get the asset through a seizure or a debt for equity swap, eh, tomato, tomato, they still have the asset. So it, it, again, I think I thought you were going to say that it's going to provoke the response from the U.S., which I also think that it will as well. So while African stakeholders in those countries may respond passionately to this, I also suspect that China hawks in the U.S. will as well. But then, you know, kind of what what would that respond come down to in the end? It's like, oh, like, oh, criticism for three days. And then what? You know, it's not it's not like it's 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 not like it's going to draw them to to be like, oh, we should be building power grids in Africa, too. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I don't I don't super foresee that happening. Well, but that's been the fundamental problem with the U.S. I mean, that from the beginning has been the problem with the U.S. is that they criticize Africans for using Huawei equipment but don't come up with an alternative. They criticize uh, Africans for engaging Chinese on educational diplomacy, and then the U.S. turns around and makes it only for two-year visas rather than for four-year visas if this plan goes through. Time and time again, the U.S. does not come through with an alternative, and so a lot of these critiques of the Chinese engagement in Africa ring hollow to African presidents and prime ministers who say, what are you going to do for me? And they go, well, nothing. Let's talk about democracy. And now the United States really can't even talk about democracy that much, given that Trump, the president, has not guaranteed a peaceful transfer of power. They're talking about suppressing the vote. So the United States really doesn't have the moral standing that it used to have or it thought it had on democracy issues, especially as we're going through this wrenching period of Black Lives Matter and the tensions with police and also the racial and ethnic tensions that are pulling American society apart. So I'm not so sure those talking points will be as credible. That, for example, will not stop the United States, though, from talking about them. Let's be very clear about it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, you know, kind of in the United States defense, I think that there's lots of problems to be raised around kind of that level of, of close engagement with China. I mean, China is a handful in lots of ways. I think the, the but it, it it does come down to to Mandela's quote that 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 you had in the the soundbite. Like if you know, like we we gauge these external um, relationships in terms of their their commitment to our liberation, you know. And the thing is, at the moment, like African liberation is as much dependent on a working internet network as it is on like political rights, you know. So so kind of again, like you know, Africa gauges engagement in terms of people's. But yeah. to what are you going to do for me? And in a lot of a lot of cases, the West isn't particularly committed to African liber, liber, liberation. Not then, and not now. 
Yeah, and I and I wrote last week about how the the European Union has postponed some of its Africa strategy. Also, Japan had to withdraw a number of its executives. I was critiqued on that, that said Japan's localized a lot of their manufacturing and their corporate operations in Africa, so them withdrawing Japanese expatriates, not really the biggest impact. But nonetheless, it shows an apprehensiveness on a lot of the foreign partners who once were very enthusiastic. As late as 2019, all those summits, if you recall, what was it, Russia, Turkey, Japan, European Union, the UK Investment Summit, you're not hearing too much from these guys, and yet the Chinese day in and day out, are building stuff on the ground. The new Lagos to Ibadan standard gauge railway is now starting to roll. It's on schedule to begin be, uh, before the end of the year. The next line of the standard gauge railway in, in Nigeria is going to start construction very soon. These are big projects. Now, again, I don't say any of this as an enthusiastic supporter, endorser of what the Chinese are doing. But to Kobus's point, facts on the ground matter. And a railway that is now starting to carry people, or soon will carry people in Lagos to Ibadan, is really a fact on the ground. So anything that the U.S. says or the European Union says to criticize the Chinese, they have to confront the reality that the Chinese are making stuff happen. And that's kind of important, as Kobus pointed out. That's what Africa needs today more than anything. Final thoughts to you, Kobus, before we go. Yeah, you know, and th this is this is absolutely not to not to diminish, you know, like issues around illiberalism and and kind of human rights problems in China and, you know, and and general kind of the creep of of illiberalism around the world. You know that those are those are all big problems. It's it's more a situation that that you know kind of africa is sitting on a knife edge you know if if there's there's a window during you know within which they can they can take advantage of this demographic dividend they have with all of these young people and then at some stage it's not only that that window is going to close it's that those those very young people those people who are now africa's biggest asset will turn into africa's biggest liability um you know like like there's nothing as as disruptive as a very large population are very unhappy people um, who don't have anything to do and don't have any jobs. So you know, so so in that sense, it's it's not a general thing about general development in the world. It's it's a thing that's that is that's contingent about the next ten years. Um, you know, so in that sense, kind of who's who's you know the people who step up and is willing to engage with that and actually help to 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 turn that corner. Of course, they could, their opinions count for more. You know, because because they were there. Um, you know, so it's, it's not that difficult. I think to your point, I just want to emphasize this, and this is a point that's been made on several occasions by Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. The fact is that at, you said Africa's on a knife's edge. Uh, he called it on the precipice of the abyss. We are looking right now at 25 to 35 million people falling into unimaginable poverty because of the current economic crisis. And the fact that the G20 and the various other countries, China included, have not been able to deliver the 100 to 150 billion dollars that people like Vera Songwei at the United Nations and others have been calling for uh, is really pushing this continent past the knife's edge. And in some cases, I think personally that we're going to look back to the moment where we are now and we will have been over the precipice that Abayi warned us about. Uh, this is really going to set back. And he said, and he said, I think it's going to set back Africa at least a generation now at least a generation, 25 years in their economic growth to catch up from what's happening right now. So these creditors, private creditors, China, 
and the multilaterals, even though the multilaterals seem to be doing much, but they're doing more because there's less at stake for them, because they're not as exposed as they were in previous eras. Nonetheless, this is where we are today in this very, very dark time. These are the kinds of columns, and we referenced throughout the show today, uh, the articles that Kobus and I are writing. These articles first go into our daily newsletter, and then they go on to our website. Our website is only accessible for the most part to subscribers after three page views. So if you want to read all the stuff that we're talking about, the contributors that we work with, uh, go ahead and sign up and to subscribe. It's only $3 for three months, super cheap. Uh, we really wanted to make it accessible for people. And then afterwards, it's $7 a month for students and teachers or $15 a month for everybody else. Uh, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. You'll get a daily email newsletter. You'll have access to all of our archives on the site and our China Africa Experts Network as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. As always, Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. So for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.